0: Hi, my name is Sam Fudo, and welcome to another episode of the Understanding Healthcare podcast. Today, I spoke with Dr. Richard Pan, pediatrician and former California State Senator, with a distinguished career spanning academia, clinical practice, and public service. We'll be discussing his journey into medicine, work on social determinants of health, and his role in increasing vaccination uptake to improve public health outcomes. Dr. Pan's unique experiences provide a valuable perspective on the importance of bridging the gap between healthcare and public policy. So, here's my conversation with Dr. Richard Pan. You know, first, could you could you talk about your career before serving in the California state legislature, as well as now that you're out of office? I know you spent extensive time in academia and clinical practice as a pediatrician. So so why medicine and how did your work in in that space translate into a career? And bridging those values into public service? Sure. Well, uh, I was interested in being a physician since I was very young. Uh,
1: I think my initial goal was to what I call discover the next great cure. In fact, I was a biophysics major in college where I was working on essentially like gene expression, all that mole- good molecular biology stuff. Uh, however, uh, due to uh, uh, some events like being beat out at the paper by a grad student and so forth, mm-hmm. I actually ended up uh, finding a job in the health policy arena. And I like to say my career goes from the micro to the macro because I was moving along my career first in college, having the chance to work at a health policy center uh, as a research assistant, Mm -hmm. a little bit by accident actually. Uh, And then uh, in medical school, having the opportunity to spend time with the U.S. Public Health Service at a community health center. And then later in residency, uh, being interested in working in community health. I also recognized that uh, we can, we need people to discover next great cure, right? We need the molecular scientists, the people in the lab, but if people can't get access to those cures, uh, then they're not really helping in awe of people, right? And so there's work for those of us who are interested in how do we improve access to care, but also what's the impact of communities on people's health, right? So the social terms of health that actually are the major influence on people's health status. And that became really the focus of my career and uh, during uh, residency uh, and fellowship, I was particularly looking at how do we train physicians uh, to understand about social determinants' of health and actually give them tools to do something about it, right? I mean, changing social determinants is difficult, right? It's not easy, but there are things physicians can do to help support changes. And that really became the focus of my career and work. Uh, in fact, I got recruited after fellowship to UC Davis to start a program to Trained our pediatric residents at UC Davis around these uh, principles, Uh, and so that's what I did, and I was running the residency program uh, there. Now, of course, one of the major levers in trying to affect social determinants is actually policy change, right, and that involves uh, government, so during both residency fellowship and certainly during my time as a faculty member uh, in Sacramento, uh, I knew that was important to be involved in um, educating uh, elected leaders and government officials about social determinants, about things that are influencing children's health. Uh, I had to, in my training program, of course, as the uh, person who is teaching it, model what I wanted my learners to do, right? So as students and residents, you go, you ask your faculty member, so great, you're teaching us this stuff. How do you do it? And the person says, well, I don't know, or I don't do it myself. Uh, so I had to model that. So in the process of that was involved in a lot of community efforts to improve health, including starting a not-for-profit to help over 65,000 children get health care coverage, serving on our County First Five Commission, uh, being active in my medical society, including being chair of legislation of the California Medical Association, organizing other uh, coalitions to improve our safety net and other types of things as well. So all those things Uh, coming together uh, to try to address uh, these social determinants of health, the things that are influencing the health of of children. Uh, Finally, when the Great Recession hit, uh, and I saw the impact I was having on my patients when they couldn't get mental health services, I have a particular clinical focus as a pediatrician on children with uh, learning disabilities and behavioral issues. Uh, In fact, I was a medical consultant to our school district, working with our uh, school nurses and psychologists and teachers, when I saw the impact that those budget cuts were having, uh, that uh, you know, cuts the funding for mental health, other types of uh, services for children and for families, uh, lots of adults too, the impact it was having on our economy, uh, that's when I decided to run for office. So I did not originally plan to run for office. I'm right. a child of immigrants. My parents thought that being involved in politics would actually be dangerous. Uh, that certainly not a place for People who looked or talked like us, right? I looked around, I did not see uh, faces that looked like mine in elected office. Uh, So that was not something I was thinking about at all. Uh, And even as I advanced in my career and realized how important government was, I did not see my role as being the elected official, right? I was someone who tried to partner with other people, communicate with elected officials. But when that great recession hit and I saw the impact, I finally said to myself, well, if I'm not willing to try, how can I complain about what's happening? So that's how I ended up in the legislature.
0: Uh, that's how a doctor ended up in the legislature. <laughs> wasn't a plan. Yeah. No, absolutely. It, 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 it's really insightful, I think, because obviously one of the things you touched on is going from the, the micro to the macro and thinking about, um. Obviously, being at the, in the clinical practice and 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 seeing patients, but also how does that translate to how do we think about access and social determinants of health? And that actually basically answered my second question as well. So we'll move on to the, the next one. But um, in your time in the in the in the state legislature, one of the issues you've been most active on uh, is increasing vaccination uptake and reducing the incidence of preventable diseases um, more broadly. So. Why do you think this is such an important issue? And, and what are your reflections of the achievements you've made in this area, not only in the legislature, but also you mentioned the other roles you've had in the medical association and, and so many others. And, and how does that, again, I guess, relate to the end game, which is childhood well-being and and, and and physical health?
1: Certainly the research shows and the data shows that vaccines are one of the most important and effective ways of improving health and saving lives right uh pr- perhaps one other thing that is at the same scale uh is clean water and sewage you know sanitation right uh those are the major public health achievements and certainly there's other ones that are uh, nearly as important but uh, uh, vaccinations is up there now uh you know the opposition to my vaccination policies uh like to say well you know why is he interested in doing this et cetera. And frankly, the answer is, is that uh, in 1991, I was in Philadelphia with the public health service during medical school, during the midst of a large measles outbreak. Over 900 people got measles. Uh, I think nine children died. Uh, It was terrible. And at that time, we had an effective vaccine for measles, but there were too many children who didn't get it, right? Mm -hmm. And so that certainly showed me that it was important that we address vaccination rates, that in that case, it was as much of an access issue for some children. Uh, there were larger outbreaks in other places like Los Angeles and so forth around this uh, the same time, um, and of course, we also had a problem in Philadelphia where the uh, there was a couple of religious sects that didn't believe in healthcare and therefore didn't get children vaccinated. But it still spread way beyond uh, the people who were part of those who had those religious beliefs, okay. and uh, so that means that even when you have a group of people who uh, don't want to get vaccinated, the impact is not just on them and their children, and one could argue their children also deserve protection, but actually the larger community said, uh, you know, more about half of all the people who got measles were not members of the groups that did not want to get vaccinated, right? And so that was part of the problem. Uh, before I got, right before I got elected to office uh, as a pediatrician, uh, Uh, I was a leader in pediatrics in California. We did a survey of the uh, pediatricians in the state, and they identified uh, the decline in vaccination rates as one of their top concerns about health. Interesting enough, right before I got elected, uh, there was a large pertussis outbreak in California. Hundreds of infants hospitalized. Uh, I think 10 died. Uh, So, in fact, the legislature, before I got there, had passed a requirement that... uh, basically children who are entering seventh grade get vaccinated against pertussis because uh, the problem was, is that uh, their immunity had waned from their early vaccinations, but also research had shown places that had the highest rates of personal belief exemptions also had the highest rate of pertussis, mm-hmm. right? So that those vaccination rates matter. It wasn't just a matter of, oh, children got it and then it wore off. It had to do with there were also a large number of people who just weren't getting it period and that allowed it to spread so that recent data as well as much other data a lot of other data shows that how important vaccinations are now I didn't run for the legislature to do vaccination policy. That was not <laughs> my goal. I had other uh, many other things I was interested in, uh, particularly again as someone who's right. focused on mental health and behavioral uh, right. learning disabilities, etc. I was trying to figure out how do we improve expand access to care? How do we ensure that kids get the help they need? But clearly, when vaccination rates were declining, and they had been for more than a decade, we need to address that and. Uh, so that's how I got involved in the vaccination, uh, issue. Uh, I would point out that, uh, I have done essentially three vaccination bills, uh, and with each bill, it was triggered by an outbreak. If there weren't any outbreaks, I wouldn't have been doing any sure. bills. And so that's one thing I point out to the people who are uh, like, why are you doing vaccination bills? I said, I don't just do vaccination bills. It's in response to an outbreak, an yeah. outbreak where people's lives are at risk. People's, uh, uh Risk of a disability, uh, children's health is at risk. That means that our rates were too low, and we need to do something about it. If the if there weren't any outbreaks, I would not be doing bills about this issue. And so the crisis was there, and we need to address that.
0: Yeah, yeah, and 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 certainly even over the past couple of years with the COVID nineteen pandemic, I think it's sort of shifted many more people's uh, perspective when it comes to health, not as an individual thing, but really as a community and a universal factor in that what we do impacts our entire communities, right? Exactly what you're saying. Well,
1: actually, I think what the COVID outbreak showed, and it was the uh, power of disinformation. There's a lot of misinformation and disinformation. Disinformation means spread with intentionality to the public uh, that unfortunately has caused a, a divide in their country where you have counties with particular religious uh not but really particular political beliefs right uh that have much higher death rates than other parts of the country so in other words, we know we have effective tools and you know we have to give credit to the trump administration for getting a vaccine developed and and you know uh, warp speed or <laughs> in in uh, you know rapidly uh that that was effective in decreasing deaths and hospitalizations right uh we uh, t- took many efforts here in california to be sure we got uh PPP, you know, perfective equipment, other types of things, taking important public health actions uh, to limit the spread. That's why our rates of, uh, of this death in California are lower than uh, other states that, uh, uh, that didn't uh, essentially embrace public health. Uh, but this political divide, not only in beliefs, but also in outcomes, mm-hmm. is actually quite disturbing, right? Uh, and uh, we also know that there was a lot of misinformation, disinformation that was spread that led to that tragedy. And so we have over a million, I think is what we're at 1.1 million Americans dead of COVID. I mean, that's a shockingly high amount. That's more than all the wars, that—that's all the wars that we fought, I think, combined, I believe is it, there's more people died of COVID in the last, I guess, now three years uh than all of the wars that our country has been involved in combined in terms of uh service members who served in uh those in our our yeah. country in those wars. So that is something to uh really ponder. Like, yeah. we, we need to do better, right? Yeah. You know, we we can't afford to lose so many people.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. And and I think this this uh I think this speaks to the broader perspective that you have on all of this and, and your background coming to you know issues related to this. What what do you think? Obviously, bridging clinical practice and health policy. What is the importance of your uh, background and perspective as a clinician and a healthcare professional in these discussions and and policy debates and and legislative sessions when it comes to health policy and 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 making progress to improve health outcomes?
1: So one of the things I uh, tried to do while I was in office was actually continue to see patients. Mm. Right. So I continued to volunteer at a, a community health center. Uh, seeing uh, children who, many of them who are on our Medicaid program, Medi-Cal, or uh, are uninsured. And I'd like to say that in the beginning of the week, I helped shape the rules as a legislator. And at the end of the week, I went to clinic and I was Dr. Pan uh, and I saw patients and I lived by those rules, right? And so, uh, and I listened to families. They talked about their struggles, right? Uh, They came to me to try to improve the health of their children, improve their school performance, other types of things. And they came to me for help, right? As their doctor, that's why they were there to visit. And I think being able to connect those two is very important. Uh, Certainly my previous work in uh, both as a clinician, uh, as well as being an educator and also someone who's been involved in health policy helped inform my work as well. I think it's important to have the courage to follow the facts and the science And the reason I said it takes courage, because a lot of times people look at these from perhaps uh, ideological lenses. uh, And I think it's important to actually look at what the facts are and to do a careful analysis of uh, what's going on. Uh, Now, just like clinical medicine, uh, I point out that in clinical medicine, we don't have all the data that we may necessarily want to make decisions. Oftentimes we have to make decisions in the absence of data. Sometimes in policymaking, we, Have that same problem. There's a problem. We don't have, you know, we never have perfect data, right? Uh, But I think we need to be able to to do the best we can with what we have, and then try to make decisions that are guided by the information we have, and then, of course, seek out the information that critical information that we need. Uh, But that doesn't mean we don't act either, right? It's important to act, and I like to say during my fellowship, I did both advocacy and primary care research. Right. So I look and so the researchers are like, where's the data? Let's look at the data, the, et cetera. And they obviously like, well, we need to do something. Yeah. And it's really about balancing the two. Yeah. Right. Um, so because you can't just not do anything, you can't let generations of children go by where you don't right. act. Right. Yeah. Just because we don't have perfect data. At the yeah. same time, you don't want to be just doing something that doesn't have something supporting it. Right. Uh, otherwise, how do you know you're actually improving the lives of those children and, and their families? So, it really, is about uh, figuring out how do you accomplish both at the same time, uh, recognizing that you may have you know gaps uh, that that exist, and that, that that's a parallel with clinical medicine too, right? When a patient comes to you, you can't say, "Well, we haven't had a randomized controlled trial on this uh, on what to do about it, so therefore, I'm not going to recommend anything to you," right? right. right.
0: <laughs> no, absolutely right. And 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 it's the way you put it is great. I think in terms of having that balance, because obviously, at the end of the day people's health needs to be addressed. We need to see patients and we also need to continuously improve based on guidance and research that comes out every given day. Right. Over the, you touched on this earlier, but over the past few decades, there's been this transition to uh, better recognize not only the social determinants of health, but also factors like climate, housing, and so many others that, that affect our health almost more profoundly than our, than our genetics. Right. And so I wondered, how do you think about this integration of population health in uh, patient care itself, um, especially given the many initiatives that you've worked on in that regard. So when I came to UC
1: Davis, it was start to start a program to teach residents about social determinants and things they could do about that. Right. And so most of the residents are going to be clinicians. I mean, vast majority of them. Right. So we, I had to teach them tools they could use when they were in practice, right. They weren't all going to be elected officials. (laughs) right? I mean, that's where I ended up in the end, but uh, that wasn't my plan, but that was where I ended up in the end, and it'd be great if some of them did become elected officials, but really, the goal of my residency was not to train all these pediatric residents to be elected officials, it's to train them to be good clinicians, right? And so, if you're in clinic, right, you're in the practice, you're in the ER, you're wherever you are, you know, in the hospital, and you see a series of problems, and you go, well, seems like the root cause is out in the community, we want to teach them, like, what can you do about that, right? And uh, really one of the focuses of our program is a concept called asset-based community development, which is identifying where are the strengths and assets in the community, right? So don't just look at it from a needs-based or negative lens, but uh, from, a, from a also asset-based lens. And then also you don't personally, as a physician, have to take total responsibility for solving the problem because that's overwhelming. In yeah. fact, it's... Uh, Many of the residents, they started the program said, Well, you're Dr. Pan, you're expecting me to solve poverty. I said, No, I'm not expecting you to solve poverty. I mean, we all need to work together to solve poverty, but I don't expect you to solve poverty. Right. So, uh, what, but what you can do is you can partner with people, right? You can partner with neighborhoods. We got to teach you the skills of identifying assets and communities, figuring out how do you partner with them, and then how do you make, you know, changes uh, over time that will improve the health with. By the way, the partnership, the community, right? We're not trying to do things to communities. Right, right. We're trying to do things in partnership with communities. In other words, we're actually in many ways. I think we're it's about how do you support communities to improve themselves. It's not that I'm going to come in there and improve it for you. We right. got to support communities in the things that they want to do, right. lending our expertise, right? Uh, lending our uh, the knowledge that we have as physicians that perhaps people in the community may not have access to, but then by being a partner you can help uh, uh, educate, you can share, uh, et cetera. Uh, And then you also learn from the community members themselves. And that's what that really was about. And that's what we called the program uh, Communities and Physicians Together. We expanded to other health professionals, because I think this applies not only to physicians, so it became communities and health professionals together, but really was about how do we teach people to identify potential partners in the community and then uh, work with them to uh, really affect those Social determinants of health, right? So, uh, and and part of it, of course, is also a term we call collective efficacy when we talk about building social capital, building social networks, and that social that collective efficacy is about mobilizing then to leverage resources, community resources, which is oftentimes through government, right? So, your school board, your local, uh, you know, your city or uh, your county or your state, and maybe you know even the federal level, right? So, how do how do we uh, mobilize people to uh, uh, to after you identify the problem to help try to solve those.
0: Yeah, and ultimately, if you follow that process and it works out, what it also does is it builds trust, right? Because of that mutual, we're not doing something to, we're doing things with the community, right. and you're building trust between the various stakeholders that we largely need more trusted today, obviously, um, and. And it gets, I think, it, well, well, and it gets away from the sort of the ideas and the conception, you know, the the concept of it all, and it gets to implementation and how do you actually make all this come, you know, happen in, in in the real world? Yes.
1: So again, it it yeah, trust is another key uh, uh, part of what this is about, and I mean that that also is parallel patient care, right? right. Uh, what we do know uh, is that uh, patients who have a continuous trusted relationship with their uh, their physician, right, and their and through that their healthcare team, mm-hmm. what we call a medical home, uh, right. The medical home model is grounded in uh, trust, right. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, we've seen models where they've tried to essentially help support patients and provide information to patients, but without that relationship and trust, and those models tend to fail, mm-hmm. right. So if you look at the research that's been done on, for example, advanced primary care and uh, And the fact that primary care can both improve quality and reduce costs, well, why is it? What's so special about primary care? Well, it's actually that longitudinal continuous trust. In fact, one of the things I've tried to do as a policymaker, as a legislator, is to have our policymakers not think about professionals as essentially widgets, interchangeable, right? Well, you're a doctor, you're a doctor, so it doesn't matter. They can see you once, see you the other time, right? But actually that continuity yeah is important which is that relationship that relationship brings value right yeah. it, it that's where the decrease in utilization the cost savings the right. improvement in outcomes come f- from is having that relationship and that therefore if we're not valuing that relationship in our policies yeah. then we're not going to get the kind of gains that the research is showing and that we want in our you know yeah. as a result of our, our programs
0: yeah and a lot of it is you can compare this across countries, but how much of an investment are we willing to make in primary care versus other specialties to invest in that? What you mentioned, longitudinal care in that medical home that is so important in building trust and so many other things in terms of preventing things so they don't get worse and we actually save costs in the long term.
1: Yeah. One one thing I will point out, and by the way, I'm a you know, general pediatrician, so I'm all pro primary care, but okay. really it is about launch, you know, an ongoing relationship, right? yeah. So. For example, someone with cancer, their quote, primary care doctor may actually be an oncologist, right? Uh, so so I think what I keep in mind for those of people who are listening, right when, I, when I, it really is about having a medical home, which most of the time people are talking about primary care, but there are specialists who have longitudinal relationships with, with their patients that could also provide the medical home. So it's not exclusively someone who has one of the you know primary care title, you know, specialty designations. It's really about that ongoing relation. But then that means that that person, whether they're you know family physician, pediatrician, or oncologist, also accepts that responsibility to look at the entirety of the care, not just whatever part right. you know the subspecialty or whatever else. Right. I mean, that's the other part, right? So if you're going to be in the medical home, you take responsibility coordinating across. And yeah. any of us primary care doctors know that doesn't mean you're an expert in every problem that your patient has, right? Yeah. <laughs> because that's why you refer to specialists.
0: Exactly. right?
1: So, uh, so, and for the specialists who are taking on that role, it doesn't mean you're the expert in every single thing in your patient's care either. You're probably a specialist in yeah. the area, but if you're willing to take responsibility for those coordinating those other things, then you can also become a medical home, yeah. at least in my mind. There may be some people that disagree with me,
0: but... No, no, it it makes a lot of sense, and and, and certainly I think it's something that many can learn from as we think about how do we, you know, improve affordability, accessibility, and quality moving forward. But um, my last question is really, you know, you mentioned everything you've done so far in your career, and I wondered, reflecting on all of that, your time in the state legislature, you know, what's kept you going throughout it all? You touched on this before, but what's kept you going throughout it all? And what advice would you have for young people who are interested in, and passionate about healthcare and um, public service uh, based on everything we've discussed and, and future trends that you see moving forward?
1: Well, so it's it's a, it's a privilege to uh, to take care of patients. Uh, after all, when you are someone's doctor or, uh, you know, you work with a family of someone who you're a doctor for, People share with you um, things that would never share with anyone else. Sometimes even with their own family, right? Uh, because you're trusted to try to do what's best for them. That's that's what being a physician is about. That's what many other healthcare professionals play that role too. So that's a sacred trust that we have to maintain. Uh, and that's so important. And then certainly it's been a privilege to represent the people uh, in my uh, the various districts I've represented in the legislature as well, that they've entrusted me to represent them, right? To cast votes on policies on their behalf. Now, not everyone necessarily agrees, right? right. <laughs> Across the higher, whole district, et cetera, but they, but, uh, they trust me to make those judgments on behalf of, uh, the people that live in my district and themselves as, as, as constituents. So, uh, I think that is something that's very important. We've eroded that trust in many ways. Uh, and, you know, uh, uh, there's been erosion of that trust uh, we do have to earn that but also i think that uh, it, it is a relationship of mutual respect right uh, right and as a physician my job is not to tell patients what they want to hear it's to tell them the truth right and to give them the best guidance i can right uh, you know while while listening carefully to what what their desires are right uh, so and same as an elected official so, so I guess what I would say though is, is that I, I'm an optimist. I, I think that you know, as, as our profession has evolved in medicine, um, uh, it, it, when I was first starting off, I think this idea of um, social determinants was earlier on. I think that there were certainly many leading physicians uh, uh, who, who, particularly in my field in pediatrics, uh, that that said, look, you know, it goes all the way back to Abraham Jacobi, who's considered the father of American pediatrics. He says you have to look at you know, the circumstances, the community in which patients live, and that was part of the tradition in pediatrics, and that's, I think, our professions continue to evolve in that direction as well, but that can also sometimes feel overwhelming, right, because it's, uh, you know, we sort of like, well, this, we're trained to deliver a set of, you know, health services and do it well, right, but our, but our responsibility is broader than that, and in fact, I point that out, right, so our, the, the the medical profession's job is not simply to deliver high quality, accessible healthcare services, right? Yeah. I mean, that's most of what we do, right? That's what you do. But if you look at the mission of almost any medical association, it's to, you know, it's to improve the health yeah. of the, the country or the state, right? Their state medical library you know, of children for pediatrics, right? It's not just to deliver healthcare services, it's to improve the health. So our profession has embraced that larger from the beginning and, 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 uh, and we're coming up with ever you know new and better ways of doing that. And sometimes it can be a little scary too, right? Because, you know, taking on that kind of responsibility, but uh, I think that's energizing. Um, uh, I think that's something that uh, particularly younger physicians really uh, are, you know, looking at and wanting to do, right? Because you talk about things like climate change. <laughs> you talk about, uh, you, know, uh, you know, lots of other things I could go on for a while about that, right? You know, uh, you know inequality, right? Uh, racism, et cetera, right? And how does that incorporate into, into practice? Because they all affect health, right? They all affect health, that, that World Health Organization definition of health. So there's actually a lot, I always tell people, you go into medicine, there's a lot of things you can do within the umbrella of medicine, right? Because of this broad definition of health, right? Yeah. And uh, uh you know, our profession needs to continue to, you know, work with and partner with others and both in within healthcare, but also without, you know, others as well. We things like, you know, we have medical legal partnerships and clinics, right? Uh we have, you know, we 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 give out books and uh and we partner with schools and other, you know, et cetera, other professions to try to you know, I was a medical consultant for a school district, right? Because right. it was right, because I could see some of those kids in my office, but yeah, you know, I could actually reach a lot more by working with the school and the school and the teachers and the school nurses and the school district. They want to improve. They want the kids to learn better, right? So bad health tends to discourage good learning, right? So right. It's, it's, we had mutual we had mutual desires. So I think there's a lot of exciting opportunities. Uh, just don't feel like you have to do it all, yeah. okay? I'm probably yeah. not the best example. Some people say, "Well, our et cetera." But I mean, you don't have to do it all. there are ways you can go about and make a difference in so many different ways, right? Mm -hmm. And so, But it does mean working together. I do say is that one of the things is coalition building, working together, partnerships, right? And in fact, I think in medical education, one of the things um, that I'm trying to encourage people to do is think how how we teach sort of both leadership and partnership skills. In fact, that's a lot of what I taught in the program I established at UC Davis was really how do you partner with community organizations, right? Uh, how, how do you form those, you know, positive relationships with them? You don't go walking in telling them like, hey, I'm a doctor and I have the answers. And I'm going to tell you what to do and just go do it and everything will be better, right? That's not the way you do it, right? Uh, mm-hmm. How do we form partnerships? How do we build coalitions? How do we do this? And, and, and I'll say that, by the way, that works in the legislature too. So in politics, it's about partnerships, coalition building, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of exciting opportunities, um, uh, you know, uh, and I think that, and certainly the advancements we've had in science uh, have, uh, allowed people to do so much more, you know, there's so many, so much more we can do now than we could, even when I graduated medical school, I'm not that old. Uh, so at least not like not to think I'm that old. Uh, so, uh, so I think that's exciting. Um, but I also understand you know, there's a lot of stresses too, right? Um, so, uh, you know, these are challenging times. What happens when you have a patient who basically, you know, said, uh, to said, that uh doesn't you know you know there's something going to improve their health like let's talk about vaccines but i don't get vaccinated because i you know i read this or whatever and you realize you have to spend a lot of time debunking bad information and so forth and and dealing with insurance companies can be frustrating and stuff like that right so i know that there's a lot of people who feel very frustrated about that and we, we got to work on those things as well uh, but uh but i sort of feel like that i've been able to you know empower myself uh through the work i've been able to do uh, in, you know, through, uh, as a physician and that, uh, and, and that, yes, it, sometimes it's a pain in the neck I, I live by those rules every Friday, right? When I yeah, was right. in the clinic, I was in the legislature, right? I, I did live by those rules, right? So, um, uh, so, uh, but I think working together, we can make changes and, and, uh, people want, you know, people like to see a better future.
0: No, yeah, absolutely, and 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 I think it, you hit on many key things there. In terms of we have so much to look forward to, also recognizing the problems we have, but also taking those into account in terms of uh, coming up with future solutions. But, um, at Dr. Pan, it really means a lot that you're able to to make time today and, and, and chat. I'm I'm so grateful for you to to take time and come on. So so thanks so much again.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Sam. Thank you for having me, and great talking to you.
0: Thank you so much for listening, and I hope my conversation with Dr. Pan has shed light on the vital role that medical professionals can play in public policy, and the power of interdisciplinary approaches in improving health and well-being across populations. I hope it inspires many of you to consider the connections between healthcare, public service, and policy reform as you pursue your own paths in these fields. So I hope you're doing well and staying safe, and remember, we can't just consume healthcare, we have to understand healthcare.